Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As director of the Middle East Center, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the 43rd George Antonius Memorial Lecture. Established in 1976 by the late George Scanlon, professor of Islamic archeology span at the American University in Cairo, and a long-standing friend of the Middle East Center, the Antonius Lecture has developed into the culminating event of the academic year here in the Middle East Center. We have organized 43 lectures since George Mectesey gave the inaugural Antonius on the origin and development of the college in Islam and the West. Only once have we had to cancel an Antonius, when in 2011, BBC Middle East editor Jeremy Bowen was called away at very short notice by a very big story called the Arab Spring. Otherwise, we've enjoyed an uninterrupted stream of scholars, leaders, and intellectuals who have expanded our grasp of the Middle East in all of its aspects. A uh, string of Middle East Center scholars, starting with our founding father, Albert Hurani, and including Mustafa Badawi, Roger Owen, Derek Hopwood, I'm glad to see he's with us today, our honorary fellow, Roger Lewis, our esteemed colleague from Modern College, <laughs> Professor Marilyn Booth, who I'm particularly pleased to welcome to be with us tonight, so that we had the opportunity publicly to celebrate with her the tremendous success of winning the Man Booker Prize for International Fiction for her translation, Celestial uh, Bodies. So congratulations, Marilyn. You've done us all so proud. We've welcomed the framers of the Orientalist debate on different occasions, both Norman Daniel and Edward Said. The remarkable architect, Zaha Hadid, who gave us the beautiful building in which we are holding tonight's lecture. The courageous public intellectual, Noam Chomsky. Last year, we were honored to welcome the first president of post-revolutionary Tunisia, Dr. Monsef Marzouki. The list goes on, 42 names in all. And tonight we inscribe a 43rd name to that role of honor. Dr. Saeb Barakat has dedicated his life to the Palestinian national movement. A native of Abu Dis, he grew up in Jericho. He traveled to the United States for university, taking his BA in political science and master's in international relations from San Francisco State University. He returned to Palestine to teach political science at a Najah National University in Nablus in 1979. He subsequently won a prestigious scholarship to take his doctorate in the United Kingdom, graduating from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford in 1983. Upon his return to Palestine, he began writing for El Quds newspaper, a brave voice calling for dialogue between Palestinians and Israelis. He organized exchanges between students from Al Najah and Tel Aviv University. It was, as I said, a courageous move, but one that provoked outright condemnation at home for betraying Palestine and arrest by the occupation authorities for sowing division among Israelis. You must have been doing something right. Yet it revealed a commitment to dialogue and the quest for a peaceful resolution to a conflict and occupation that would soon bring Dr. Etikat to international attention and into partnership with an influential group of Palestinian activists like the Gazan Dr. Haider Abdel Shafi and West Banker Dr. Hanan Ashrawi. In 1991, Dr. Adekat agreed to serve as deputy leader of the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid conference under Haider Abdel Shafi. He wore his politics literally around his shoulders, wearing a kafiya to the opening session of the Madrid conference. The Israelis and Americans frowned on the gesture, but Palestinians cheered this assertion of their identity in a conference where they had been subsumed as part of a Jordanian delegation and in which the PLO was forbidden to participate. Dr. Adekat made it clear to all 
that the delegation was there on behalf of the PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Madrid marked the beginning of Dr. Adekat's career as one of the leading Palestinian negotiators in the troubled history of the Palestinian-Israeli peace process. Following Madrid, he served as vice chair of the Washington negotiations in 1992. Following the Oslo Accords, Dr. Adekat was named chief negotiator for the Palestinians in 1995. He served with Yasser Arafat and Faisal Husseini in the Wai River and Camp David meetings of 2000 and in the Taba negotiations of 2001. He participated in the 2007 Annapolis Conference. Sa'ab Adekat also held a number of posts in Palestinian government. In 1994, Yasser Arafat appointed him Minister for Local Government for the newly formed Palestinian National Authority. He was elected to the Palestinian Legislative Council in 1996 as member from Jericho. He served as Minister of Negotiations in Mahmoud Abbas's cabinet in 2003. In 2009, he was elected to the Fatah Central Committee and later that year to the PLO Executive Committee rising to the position of Secretary General in 2015, a position he still holds. Through three decades of diplomacy, Dr. Araikat has come to know every leader in Palestine, every Israeli Prime Minister since Yitzhak Shamir, every American President since George H.W. Bush, every British Prime Minister since John Major, and countless other statesmen and stateswomen with whom he has engaged in his ceaseless quest for Palestinian statehood. We are honored to welcome Dr. Arikat to the Middle East Center, and I ask you to join me in giving him a very warm welcome to the podium. I would like to begin by thanking uh, Professor Rogan for inviting me and uh, for this introduction, and to my dear friend Hussein Aga and Ahmad Khaldi, that is, and distinguished members of the Middle East Center, for having me speak the 43rd, that's a good number. Overall, I'm not looking this, at this as an invitation to Saab Arikat. I think it's a message that Palestine matters to the academic community. This evening, I'm going to speak about what I have done for the past three decades. As a matter of fact, I have one item in my CV, negotiator. And I don't want to end up with the quote-unquote failed negotiator. Pursuing the freedom of the state of Palestine, because no one benefits more from achieving peace with Israel more than Palestinians, and no one stands to lose more in the absence of peace more than Palestinians. I never felt that I'm doing the Israelis a favor when I sit with them, when I negotiate with them. And I hope and pray that the day will come when they will reciprocate this feeling with me. They need peace as much as I do. If we are going to talk about Palestinian statehood, we are in essence talking about the Palestinian rights of determination. To speak here, I just cannot forget Britain's historic responsibility for the denial of my people of their national rights since the issuance of the Belfort Declaration. And to talk about this period, it's impossible not to talk about George Antoine's. The true, he is mainly remembered for his intellectual work, such as the Arab Awakening, but would not be, it would not make justice to his work not to talk about what he did as practitioner in Palestine. In fact, if we were to talk about Palestinian diplomacy, and Ambassador Hossam Zumlut, our ambassador to the UK, is here. George Antonius was one of the most distinguished representatives as part of the teams that tried to pressure the United Kingdom to honor its obligations under the mandate system and allow for national independence of the Palestinian people. Professor Antonius passed away before the Nakba, or catastrophe, but his work on arguments alongside some of his notable Palestinian colleagues, such as Henry Catan, 
and Musa Alami, who by the way could be named the first Palestinian foreign minister, could never be seen without his true contribution as a Palestinian diplomat, even though he wasn't a Palestinian. Palestine was divided and the Nakba happened, but was not out of the lack of legal, political, and moral arguments that we were brilliantly expressed <coughs> as by heroes such as George Antonius. Some still talk about the missing opportunities of the Palestinians, but truly believe that George Antonius is an excellent example that no matter the arguments the Arab had in support of Palestinian self-determination, the fate of Palestinians had already been decided. The Nakba was not an accident of history, but a well-planned process that involved Western support for the denial of the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. And practical actions on the ground that conducted by Zionist organizations led to the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Put it this way, in 1948, the rights of the Palestinian people were not a priority for London, nor for Washington, nor for Moscow, and probably nor for many Arabs. They all, for different reasons, became parties to the tragedy of a nation that has been extended until today, and that has not deprived, has not only deprived us Palestinians of our inalienable rights of self-determination, but the whole region of enjoying peace and security. In 1979, I had just returned, finishing my bachelor's and master's in the States, began lecturing at Najah University, and as usual, without thinking, I decided to go outside the box. And I wrote an op-ed article, front page article in the Kutsu newspaper, OS24, telling Palestinians to recognize the state of Israel, renounce violence, and go to negotiations. The only thing that came to my mind at that moment is I had the choice. I could pursue in my life the comfortable position, or I could take the right position. I decided <coughs> to take the right position, but I didn't know the heavy price people who take the right position would pay every minute of their life. Three months ago, I was in a show called Good, Mor Good Morning America with Madam Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, the ex-U.S. ambassador. And it was a live show, and she looked me in the eyes and still told me that Palestinians are cowards, lack courage, and they need strong leaders, and that we have the habit of missing opportunities. So in my mind, you know, I, what does she know about courage? So I looked at her and asked her to shut up. I'm like, shut up. And if you shut up, your IQ may increase. I have with me my wife, 38 years, Nama. This lady and I had twin daughters, 1982. They were 11 in 1993, with a son named Ali and a son named Muhammad. One is two years and one is five years. Palestinian thugs and hoodlums came to her. I was not in the house, I was in Washington. With torches, torches, swords, knives, guns. And it took us seven years to salvage our daughters in terror. And this lady is telling me that I'm not, we lack courage and we lack experience to not to miss opportunities. In 1979, my classes were boycotted. I was a social outcast. But as I said, I felt and I knew that no one benefits more from achieving peace with Israel more than Palestinians. And no one stands to lose more than the absence of peace more than us. And I've seen some of my colleagues who took the line assassinated by other Palestinians in many capitals in Europe. I've seen extremists in the region using Palestine there rather than serving Palestine. And I still see that till today. We are referring to an important moment 79 meant the late 70s and early 80s. The period endorsing the two-state solution was not only difficult, was a treason as far as Palestinian politics is concerned. was taken, and uh, less than 11 years, that, uh, 10 years later, 1988, the Palestine Liberation Organization, headed by President Yasser Arafat 
and people like President Mahmoud Abbas and others recognized the state of Israel as a two-state solution and accepted all the demands put to us, accepting 242 and 338. And also, there were nine European countries at that they issued in 1979 the Venice Declaration. And their statement said, the nine stressed the need for Israel to put an end to the ter territorial occupation, which has had maintained since the conflict of 1967, as it has done for the part of Sinai. They are deeply convinced that Israeli settlements constitute a serious obstacle to peace in the Middle East, and the nine considered that these settlements as well as modifications in population and property in the occupied ter Arab territories are illegal under international law. There were nine. Today there are 28. You still have, you don't have, there's not a foreign policy. You still have 28 foreign policies. And yesterday, Ambassador Zumlut, for 12 hours, I think, nonstop, made me meet everybody in all parties and all cabinets in London. I, have, I had one message to these people. When you say two states, you should recognize two states. That's the logic. What, what prevents you from recognizing the state of Palestine to live side by side in peace and security with the state of Israel? Timing. That was the British answer for me. Two days ago, I was meeting with the Secretary of State of Germany, Sir Annas, and he could not do the recognition because of history. The Spanish are waiting for the French. The Germans are waiting for the Luxembourg. I don't know who's waiting for what. They're not seeing what's happening. To the Palestinians who stood tall to recognize the state of Israel, to renounce violence, to live and let live, and who devoted, devoted their lives for peace and coexistence. What, what's the cost of the UK recognizing Palestine? They'll give me oxygen for another year as Palestinian moderate, not as Khan, to go to Palestinian kids and young men and women and tell them, don't despair. You're not alone. In Britain, recognize them. Don't resort to violence. We're not going to get it. Time is wrong to save the Palestinian peace camp. And when we go down, which we're not sustainable, I'm sure that somebody may not be called Benjamin Netanyahu. I don't know who will be called in five years. He may come and lecture. Oh, we want peace. You know, Israelis want peace and so on, but we don't have a partner. And I'm sure that nobody will tell them you had people who recognized you and so on and so on and so on. Because now, if you say anything against occupation, there is an evil force on earth that's trying to equate this with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is evil. Anti-occupation is noble. And those twisted minds who are trying to mix the two are pushing us from a political conflict to a religious conflict. Judaism to me as a Palestinian was never a threat, is not a threat, will never be a threat. I don't fight the Israelis over something written in their holy Torah. I fight the Israelis because they're my occupiers because of their settlements, because of their collective punishment. And those evil forces who are trying to turn this conflict into a religious one have not even bothered to research, because had they researched, they would find out that ISIS is number 803 in political Islam since my prophet, God bless him, died. Of those who go to mosques to use God rather than worship God, those are thugs, murderers, and criminals. And as Arabs, we have not acted more cowardly as we did in the last 30 years. We did not stand tall to revisit our economic structures, our social structure, our educational structures. We should begin by teaching our children in the kindergarten how to live for Allah, not to die for Allah. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. And then we have a new force coming to Earth, I don't know which planet, 
President Trump, an esteem. I think I'm, I hold the record of having held 37 meetings with these people, four of which at the level of the presidents, and 33 others between myself and colleagues with Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt, and Friedman and others. What do you do with people who say that it's not Trump that recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital? It's God. What do you do to someone who three weeks ago in 2019 says that God sent Trump to save the Jews? And the response came from where? Professor Rogan came from Tehran. Jawad Zarif responded by saying to Pompeo, it was a, a Persian king, Cyrus, who saved the Jews from extinction. It was a Persian king who brought back Jews from exile. And it was these Negev people, Arabs, who always tried to exterminate Jews. Anyway, 70s and 80s were the years of Palestinians moving in the direction of trying to achieve their normality to their children and so on. But there were so many events during this decade of the 80s, so much. The end collapsed, Soviet Union, walls came crumbling and many things happened. Beirut was sieged in 82. The law went to Tunis and things changed, things changed. There was an intifada, first intifada. And that intifada showed the Israelis that their fantasy of having these slaves live forever under their occupation because of jobs and opportunities and economies and so on, as those geniuses who plan to promote the Manama conference next week. But we stayed the course. We went to Madrid. And Madrid, as I said, Professor, I, I was the deputy head of the delegation. And uh, I looked at all delegation with suits and ties and these things, and, and I, I was born for this man. Because this Shamir, he's in the record. There is no such a thing as a Palestinian. So I wanted to sit face to face with him. My, my seat was really, by luck, directly to his eyes. So the kufiya was a good thing to remind him. I am the representative of those people who lived in my hometown, Jericho, 11,000 years in the oldest ongoing city on earth. And I'm here to represent them. So when he saw the kufiya, he was so angry, he looked at this. So I kept looking at him, and then he looked at like this, looked at him. And then I winked at him. <laughs> and the price for this was, I couldn't enter the State Department for eight months when we began the <laughs> negotiations in Washington. That's true. We did recognize the State of Israel right to exist and live in peace and security on 1967 lines, as was demanded from us. We accepted a Palestinian state with Israel's its capital on the 67 borders. 22% of the land. And we did so many other things. And I remember James Baker, Secretary Baker, telling me in my house in Jericho, actually, Saeb, take the bus, recognize Israel, except 242 and 338, in Islands. go to negotiations. I took the bus. I'm in Elambatur somewhere and still going. <laughs> Elambatur is the capital of Mongolia now. Yasser Arafat was and is a national icon of the Palestinian people. He brought Palestinians from being refugees to Palestinians who are seeking their reestablishment of their national identity and returning Palestine to the map, and along with his colleague, President Mahmoud Abbas, who played a very vital role in 1988. And uh, many people say, Sa has been negotiating for too long as chief negotiator. Actually, I'm the ninth Palestinian in that post. We have so many. Uh, but the point here, I never felt I'm doing a job. I never felt, even though I'm the product of Western theories of practice of negotiations and conflict resolution turned out to be totally irrelevant to my part of the world. It was very simple. I'm a father of four now, and I've had, I had my eighth grandchild, Noor. She was born two weeks ago. You know, honestly, what's in it for me? I don't want them to be suicide bound. I want them to be like your children. I want them to live normally. 
and they deserve that. Now, between 1990 till now, I asked myself a question, what was different? What is different between the man standing here tonight and the man who was in Madrid conference or in Oslo, all over? I'm a changed person. I have learned that negotiations and negotiators, whether I like this or not, sometimes may feel better off without an agreement, especially if they have public pressure, if they have... I'm not saying that Israelis and Palestinians are better than anyone, and they're not worse than anyone. They're normal. They have good people, they have bad people, they have honest, dishonest, they have courageous, coward, whatever. I have met prime ministers in Israel who wanted to see Israel's security 300 years from today. It's Hakrabi. And I sat with the Prime Minister of Israel who wanted to see himself at the 10 o'clock news that evening, Benjamin Netanyahu. And that educated me to a new chapter in negotiations. A, non-negotiators, and B, tough negotiators. And with non-negotiators, God help us. We have a school now called The Art of Negotiations of Trump, even though he has a book called The Art of Negotiations, which I read, Art, The Art of the Deal. President Roosevelt once said that the White House is an office of international morality. I couldn't agree more. This White House needs giant statesmen, not real estate agents. And don't be mistaken, in 2017, I had four American generals in my hometown, Jericho, training my security forces. We were the closest allies. We did not declare war in the US. President Trump, in the presence of Ambassador Zumluk, on May 3rd, 2017, the White House promised my president that he would give negotiations one year without taking any steps that may preempt or rejudge issues of their procurement status, <coughs> including Jerusalem. November 30th, 2017, I was with Hussam in the White House, Jared's office, and I told him, tomorrow you're going to sign the waiver not to move the embassy. And he said, we're not. We're not. So I told him, oh, this could be the last meeting between you and any Palestinian. And uh, he looked at me angrily, shouted, don't threaten us. That's what he said. I said, I'd stand, I can't stand guards in your lips. I haven't developed the technique yet to stand guards in people's lips or stand guards in people's way of thinking. But mark my word, do it. And you put me in a position and after the deal of yours that I have nothing to lose. And I did not mandate anyone to negotiate in my behalf. I did not. And that was that. We don't talk to them and we will not talk to them. Non-negotiators, it's a waste of time. And people who comply with the instructions of the masters in Washington because of their interest or the definition of their interests, that's their business. I don't interfere in anyone's internal affairs. Nation states are no more. The system humans have developed since 1948-45, after the second big war, is collapsing. There is the United States Corporation of America headed by a CEO called Donald Trump. With all due respect to the UK, Corporation, there is a CEO now called Theresa May. I don't know who will be tomorrow. And to the 193 other nations, president, mayors, kings, they are, in view, the eyes of Trump are CEOs. I pay you here, pay you there. I expect back payments here and there. And to those who want to listen to him and cannot say no to him, and he using the balance of contradictions as interest and whatsoever, that's none of my business. But to everybody, pay it from your pockets, not mine. Not mine. I will not sit with non-negotiators anymore. And that's the first lesson I learned. Whether we liked or not, I learned that we should understand the concerns and fears and expectations of the other side. And to those Palestinians sitting here, I'm not advocating that we should understand settlers and settlements and confiscation of land and war crimes or apartheid. But what I'm saying, you cannot reach an agreement in presenting a just 
cause or good positions or arguments. It's about a matrix of common ground based on interests. And interests, definitions in politics requires visionaries. For me, things are not on whether one is good or bad. The measurement is whether someone is going to advance more with or without an agreement. And it seems to me that to the to Benjamin Netanyahu, who I've known for 33 years, he's a master at exporting fear. Leaders should export hope, should remove obstacles, should create opportunities. But to be leaders simply because they're good at exporting fear, that's disaster. And he believes that Israel will advance without an agreement. And as much as I put a strategy, him and his camp throughout the years developed a strategy based on three pillars. One, they want a Palestinian authority, but without any real authorities. Secondly, they want a cost-free occupation. And thirdly, they want Gaza off the limits of the West Bank. The most important point to me and to the Israelis is to ask ourselves a question. We've been there for a long time, and each one of us thought it could be solved in accordance with the zero-sum game. It will not be solved in accordance with the zero-sum game. Since Eve negotiated Adam, I may be the most disadvantaged negotiator in the history of men and women. I have no army, no navy, no air force, no economy. My people are fragmented. I know that Israel has 5,000 tanks, 3,000 fighting planes, and nuclear weapons. And it's my word against any of them in the Congress and the Senate. I don't stand a chance. And who said life is about fairness and this? Question to them, what are you going to do with me? From my hometown, Jericho, in the River Jordan, today, June 20th, 2019, I am the Christian and Muslim Palestinian, 50.9% of the population. Benjamin Netanyahu is 49.1% of the population. And I advise my Israeli and Jewish friends, when they say we, wanna, we, we need to have two states to preserve the nature of Israel as a Jewish state, I urge them not to say this, not to Palestinians. I urge them to look at Palestinians, you're, they're your neighbors. Reach out to them, tell them we want a Palestinian state because you have the right to self-determination. You're our neighbors. We're equals. We want to live and let live. Because those who want the two states in Israel use this argument. And I hope they, they can use it with Palestinians in a different way. Because how you reach out to the other side in any conflict, in public opinion, is very, very important. When it comes to that third party in the negotiations, I also learned that Israelis and Palestinians are going to make peace in the negotiating table. And if Israelis and Palestinians don't make peace, nobody else will make it for them. Period. Americans, Europeans, Arabs, Latins, Africans, Chinese, whoever, they all want to see an agreement between Palestinians. They're all willing to do whatever it takes to see an agreement materialize. But if we don't help ourselves as Israelis and Palestinians, nobody else will. Number six, things change. I learned that. I learned that the hard way. Nothing stays the same. Balances of power change. And to be very honest with you, I'm not that intelligent to be a pessimist. I tried once as an angry researcher in 1989, Najah University, but South Africa. And I came with a Brilliant study it was refereed and published, predicting that this country is going to see of blood and the Africans and declared surprise us and changed course at the right time. And I hope that Israelis will change course at the right time. Not because they will wake up one morning and feel, feel their conscience aching for my suffering. <laughs> and to be fair, I did not wake up one morning and feel my conscience aching for the suffering of Israelis that I said to them. I do it as a cardinal interest for me. If not this year, in 10 years and 50 years, the only option will be a two-state solution. State of Palestine with East Jerusalem's capital to live side by side the state of Israel on the 1967 lines. The difference between now and reaching this agreement, which is coming, is how many Israeli and Palestinian lives could be saved. And to those who believe that power can bring people like us to their knees and surrender, and Christian Palestinians should add another prayer to Sunday, maybe Wednesday, throw holy water in people's faces, 
and Muslims to add a sixth prayer to their five prayers a day because we live under Israeli occupation. That's what the Trump team wants us to do. Professor, they, they know my interest better than I do. They know what I need better than I do. They know what kind of education our children should go through better than we do. They know what's good for economy or economy better than we would do. St. John Hospital has been operating in East Jerusalem as the only eye hospital for the poor Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem for the last 123 years. President Trump cut the aid to that hospital. We have the only cancer center in East Jerusalem in a Lutheran hospital called Augusta Victoria. President Trump and his team cut the aid to that hospital. United Nations Relief and Work Agency was established by an American proposal in 1949 known as Resolution 302. It said UNRWA will shoulder its responsibility towards refugees till it solves the problem from all its aspects. They cut $350 million to UNRWA. We have 544,000 students in the refugee camps in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Palestine. 309 health centers. We have an NGO called Seeds of Peace that I established with Queen Noor, Shimon Peres, and Jan Wallach to bring Israeli kids and Palestinian kids together to know each other very early. They cut the aid to this organization, and they're calling next week for a conference in Manama called Prosperity for Peace. Do we have neons in our forehead saying stupid? And we were in Mecca in the Arab Emergency Summit. And President Abbas spoke to the Arab leaders there and told them, we're not going to go as Palestinians. And we urge you not to go. And we, don't mandate, we didn't mandate anyone. You can't say no to them. You're going to discuss. You know, I was sitting in Amman with my president going somewhere. And then we saw on Al Arabiya TV a news item that Americans have invited for a workshop in Manama. So my president looked at me, expecting that I should know. And he says, what's this? I said, I'm sorry, Mr. President. I just heard it the same minute you heard it. Nobody even bothered to consult us. Nobody even bothered to consult us. And what really bothers me is when somebody receives an invitation and he says to Kushner, okay, I'll go. Oh, I'm going for Palestinian interests. Don't say this sentence. This conference is about prosperity for settlers and settlements. You will see charts and maps with colors tomorrow. <coughs> Electricity grids in Janin, based on settlements, because they want the integration between Palestinian towns, villages, and refugee camps with settlements. Water supplies in Jericho, sewage in Hebron, everything linked to settlements. Today, they have been in office for 28 months. Did anyone hear in this room the term occupation by any of them? Did any of you hear two states? Did any one of you hear settlements are illegal? What they want in Manama is to change the concept Palestinian rights to Palestinian needs. Yes, you have the right to education, but your children should not learn about these maps or this history. You have ID cards, it's gonna be green for you and blue for the Israelis. You can drive cars in certain streets and you're gonna have license plates that are white and green and Israelis will have yellow. There's a deeper apartheid system that exists in the West Bank and East Jerusalem today than that existed in South Africa's darkest hours of apartheid. In my experience, I have not wasted a minute negotiating with the Israelis. We came a long way. In 2008, we exchanged maps with the most courageous Israeli prime minister I encountered, Hood Olmert. He gave us a map he drew it in a napkin that specified 6.5% trade-offs, swaps in size and value, and he added to my president, and I was present there, and I would say it, we add 20 square kilometers to the size of the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem just to make you say that we got more land. And with this hand, on behalf of my president, I handed him five days later a map of 1.9% swaps. So had anyone, of course, he was brought down. There's an American gentleman named Children Adelson. He spent one billion shekels, $300 million to bring him down and send him to jail. Created a newspaper even, distributed freely to do that. And he's, by the way, one of the mentors of Trump. And 
All you could have done is, you know, the 1.9 that we gave is not, time is up. The 1.9 we gave in our map is not Quranic. And the 6.5 is not in the Bible or the Torah. Anyone reach an agreement? Could sit down. Some will bring the Russians, the Chinese, the Europeans, Saudi, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, all the stakeholders, and see what's the bridging proposal between the 6.5 and the 1.9, and you have the deal. But the whole terms of references that were provided for and created since 1948 are now being canceled by the Trump administration and this team. That's what's happening. I'm not saying that previous American administrations were not one-sided towards Israel. They all were. But at least on you know, 27th of January 2017, a week into President Trump's first or taking office first, the website said two states, 67, agreed swap, settlement are illegal, obstacle to peace, East Jerusalem is occupied, and its annexation is null and void. Now this is cancelled. And these people want to change the concept land for peace to money for peace. Palestine is not for sale. Jerusalem is not for sale. Not in a year, not in a thousand years. And Israelis, I don't think in 2019 they can gather us in camps and start killing us. For one reason. Palestinians are not in the habit of dying standing on lines. Secondly, they may start mass expulsions to us. And that's not going to happen. Not because we count on your Western civilization and holding Netanyahu accountable and charging him and stop him doing things with impunity, as you do. Yes, there are people like me who believe in two states, believe in violence, saving lives, and that's what I've done. That will not give up on this. Not now. I was giving a lecture in one of the Palestinian universities recently. And when one young man, I think 19 years old, stood up and uh, I had uh, to go through a medical procedure, small one, a lung transplant, an open heart surgery last year. So that young kid told me, congratulations, and next time we hope that you do a tongue transplant. He wasn't joking. And I think this young man will make it in Palestinian politics. It's very, very cruel. He told me, I've been listening to Saab Ayakat since I was in my mother's womb. Two states, peace, non-violent, we're sick and tired of you. For God's sake, you're a professor, go write your memoirs. You almost died last year without any written things left. Enough. And believe me, if you go to Palestinian streets today and ask people, they're so angry. Their anger will be 20% Trump, 20% Netanyahu, 60% me at me. Why? Not because they abandoned the two-state solution. They're angry because I could not deliver. I was prevented to deliver. Because if you watch and timing and history and this and that and that, and because Netanyahu stands up in his election campaign and say... My trade with the EU in 2009, when I came to office, stood at 16.2 billion euros. Today, March 2019, it's 39.7 billion euros. Why should you vote for somebody else? I'm doing settlements, I'm confiscating land, I'm committing crimes, extrajudicial killing, sieging Gaza, being rewarded. The seventh lesson I learned is when the timing of people is wrong, and when real powers, economic or military, don't understand that power means more responsibility we go towards disaster. And Palestinians and Israelis like the science of physics. There is no such thing as a vacuum. If now Trump and Netanyahu wants to undermine the two-state solution, if Palestinians think that they can do it through one state equal rights, which is, by the way, a very civilized concept for Jews, Muslims, and Christians to live as equals. But I tell my Palestinian people, it's not doable. They will never accept it as Israelis. And Trump and his team and Netanyahu believe today that it's one state, two systems. In the absence of hope in the minds of Palestinians and Israelis, there'll be blood. I would, I would like to conclude by saying that 30 years of quest for Palestinian statehood, 71 years for, of quest for, for return, 52 years of quest for ending the occupation, 
and all landmarks that we could mention here continue to be a black mark for the international community. It is immoral that Palestinians still cannot coexist and exercise the right to self-determination, which is, by the way, supported by every country on earth, except for Israel. Not uh, all Israel, half Israel. The official position of the United Kingdom is two states on the 1967. That's the official position of Argentina. And that's the official position of Nigeria, Japan, Thailand. And I once told Jared Kushner, if you can't find a Chinese negotiator, a Thai, Guatemala, to do the job for me, please do it. <laughs> please do it. We have recognized the state of Israel right to exist and live in peace and security on the 1967 line. And I'm concluding by saying we have presented a plan on February 20th, 2018 by President Abbas to the Security Council reiterating the two-state solution, international law, the rule of law, non-violence, and to live and let live. And now, Mr. Ardan, the strategic minister of strategic things in Israel, I don't know what they mean by strategic things in Israel, in a Jerusalem Post conference two days ago in New York, the first thing that must happen is we must get rid of Mahmoud Abbas. You know what? Just imagine in Oxford, and you are, see the IQ 170 and above. If Mother Teresa were to be announced tomorrow the president of Palestine. Montesquieu to be the speaker of the Palestinian parliament. And Thomas Jefferson were to be the prime minister of Palestine. And these two, three people will meet and say, we must have a state, Palestinian state, on the 1967 lines with East Jerusalem's capital. You know what Trump and Netanyahu will say? Terrorists related to Bin Laden, not good to govern Palestinians. Because Jared Kushner last week said, if these Palestinians accept what we offer, they're decent, good, able to govern Palestinians. If they refuse what we offer, they're corrupt, not fit to govern. And for 37 meetings, they did not share a sentence with me about what they want. And by the way, not me alone. Your prime minister asked to see foreign minister, Saudis, Egyptians, Jordanians, Chinese, South Africans. Everyone asked them, share with us. You must trust us. It is immoral that Palestinians still suffer in 2019. And it is particularly special for me to say this here, in the land of Lord Balfour, whose declaration began a process of disposition that's being advanced today by the Trump administration. George Antonius, a Lebanese, British civil servant, and eventually, as I like to refer to him, also a diplomat that served the cause of Palestine, was a pragmatist. This position allowed him to play various roles, including the one of mediator. When it came to the issues of his own faith within the Orthodox Patriarch, of Jerusalem and the struggle of the Palestinian congregation to get their rights respected, but this pragmatism did not make him compromise on the basic principle of justice. The eighth lesson I learned is that any relations between anyone on this earth, individuals, I mean friends, husbands and wives, deans, heads of departments, their colleagues, nation states, units, no relation can survive if the FAIR is absent. No relation will ever survive if it's not fair. Not on the individual basis, not on the national basis. I want to say also that no one in, in their sane mind should think that Palestinians will surrender. Palestinians are 99% literacy rate by the end of 2018. Palestinians will not compromise their basic rights. And no one should ask and demand and test Palestinians to compromise and give up on their base rights. You have a choice. You're 194 nations with flags, national carriers, symbolism, I don't know what you call it. I want to be like you. If you don't want me to be like you, then you have to be like me. Give up these concepts, symbolism, anything. 
But if you expect that I will be the exception in this world, think again. Those 30 years have been years of genuine work, for creativity, of suffering, of pain. And I thought, I think it's much, much easier to wage war than to make peace. But we have not compromised on the basic principles of justice, the rule of law, international law. I said to some of your colleagues in your office, Professor, that the mistakes I made in these 30 years, you can bring six PhD candidates to do PhDs on them. I'm not saying we're perfect. But honestly, we don't wake up in the morning as Palestinians and say today we are going to commit the following mistakes. For God's sakes, we're 20 years older than before. We have an overloaded wagon of complexities. Sometimes we don't differentiate between freedom of expression and incitement. We need help. But in Palestine, irrespective of the amount of mistakes that happened, Palestinians are not demanded to see with the eyes of their leaders or to hear through their ears or to speak through their tongues. Palestine will be a country based on the rule of law, women's rights, human rights, accountability, transparency. We have 26 political parties, one of them is called Hamas. And to them, we can't exclude them, they can't exclude us. What we're offering them today is that when we differ, and we differ, we go to ballots and not bullets. We need elections. We need elections, general elections, more than any time before. See, today in Arab major capitals, we speak about Shiites and Sunnis. The Muslim Brotherhood are the products of the Sunnis. They're against us as Palestinian national movement. They continue the coup d'etat of Gaza. And unfortunately, the Shiites, Iran, are also against us because I learned, number nine, the big difference between serving Palestine and using Palestine. I know that I will not wake up one morning and find Tehran next to Buenos Aires or Alaska. I know the political geography. But I once had a conversation with one of, the, one of their leaders in the UN. And I tell the gentleman, I refrain to mention his name, out of respect. From 1967 to 1979, the Shah of Iran did not build a classroom in Gaza or the West Bank and the Islamic Republic of Iran did not build a classroom or a hospital bed in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Why do you need to talk about canceling Israel off the map? Why can't you talk about adding Palestine to the map? That's what serves me. Why do you need to give bags of money to this Palestinian faction and that faction so we can't be fragmented and we can't coup d'etat? And he answered me very calmly, very decently, very respectfully. Oh, Qum and Tehran don't ring bells in Iranian minds or ticks in Iranian hearts. We have a Jerusalem Day and a Palestine army. They want the Palestinian car. It's not enough what they're doing in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Gaza. I hope that everyone here will understand that the real threat on Arabs are Arabs. 60% of us are less than 18 years of age. None of us in the leadership in any Arab country are a match to this thug called Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's promising 70 virgins to our desperate youth unemployed. Castles, I cannot promise a young Palestinian unemployed a part-time job. The real threat on Israel is Israel's occupation. Mark my word, we're there and we're there to stay. And if they want to bring us down, they may succeed. We're not sustainable. But how many years will it take them to produce another Mahmoud Abbas or Hanan Ashrawi or Sabah Al-Qat or Hazab Zumbak or Ahmad Khali? We have not compromised in the principle of justice, fairness, international law, because we want peace that can survive the test of time. We are looking to the day after. They, they've been trying to force peace on me since I was 12 years old when the occupation came to my hometown, Jericho. Settlements, dictation, collective punishments, apartheid, extrajudicial killing, uh, whatever, demolishing of homes. And they have been repeating it on the hour, every hour, for 52 years since the occupation of 1967. And they, none of them have read the definition of Einstein to madness, repeating the same thing with the same ingredients and expecting different results. This is a message that everyone interested in achieving peace in the Middle East should understand. This is not about asking the weak to compromise 
it's compromised. But to make the occupier adhere to the basic principles of international law that any other nation should respect, including Israel, because we will never accept Israel as a country above the laws of man. Madam C.V. Hot, really the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Foreign Minister of Israel, said yesterday and asked people in the audience in New York, Jerusalem Post, the National Conference, to mark her words that from River Jordan to the West, there will be only one country, one nation state called Israel. Which Israel did you ask me to recognize? And you demanded that I recognize. And if this is the fact that the only thing will be Israel, so it could mean uh, the conclusion will be either I'll be a slave or an Israeli citizen. Israeli citizens, I'm not. It's enslaved. And Palestinians, every 25 years in their national history, have made a change of course. We will not surrender. But there are those of us who still believe that things can change. Because if not this year, in 100 years, there's going to be a two-state solution. And I thank you very much.